Welcome to the Close Set Podcast. My name is Themistocles Alexis. Today, we will be revisiting the life and a selection of works of the great Italian filmmaker Michelangelo Antonioni. to the show. Uh, it's been a while. Been away for about a month. I know I didn't put an episode out uh, for the month of April. Things have been pretty hectic. Been juggling uh, three jobs, acting class, and then of course uh, I had Greek Orthodox Easter, so Holy Week was very busy, and uh, my sister was visiting from Germany, and, and then of course with the uh, with the Easter festivities, I shoved a lot of food into my cake hole, and there was a lot going on, so it, uh, it kind of kept me away from the show for a while, but it's good to be back. And uh, I'm very happy to say that a lot of new listeners have trickled in, uh, again, from all over the world. We've had new listeners from Austria, Mexico, Spain, Turkey, Iran, Japan, uh, the Netherlands, Brazil, the UK and Germany, of course, uh, the Czech Republic as a very recently, Denmark as well. Fuck yeah! And I just want to uh, remind you that I see your ass, and uh, I appreciate it. And uh, keep it coming. And whatever your preferred uh, platform is for uh, podcasts and the like, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iTunes, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, whatever it is, please uh, give us a like, subscribe, leave ratings, reviews, comments, whatever you can just to get help the, uh, the podcast rank a little better and get some more eyes on it. Uh, every little bit helps, and uh, it is greatly appreciated. And thank you again for listening. Thank you again for your support. And uh, on with the program. So today, like I said, we will be talking about Michelangelo Antonioni, a, uh, a legendary and beloved Italian filmmaker who is no longer with us. And he was heralded as a pioneer of sorts of the Italian neorealist movement that came out of Italy after the war, shortly after World War II. And then later, in the 60s, which was a great decade for him and the decade in which he produced his best-known works, he kind of set a new standard for the, uh, the European art film, if you will. A lot of great uh, filmmakers came to prominence during that time, uh, there was Ingmar Bergman from Sweden, there was Jean-Luc Godard and Alain Resnais, and the list goes on and on. And he was known for films that depicted uh, sort of the, the superficiality and the emptiness of modern life, life in the industrialized north of Italy, which is where he grew up. We're going to talk about that a little more shortly. These portraits of, uh, you know, urban malaise and uh, existential dread. It's hard to say these words without sounding like a pretentious douche, but uh, you understand. Um, <laughs> so we're going to be talking about all that. The films that we're going to be looking at in depth today are, in chronological order as always, uh, La Ventura, which came out in 1960, La Notte in 61, Le which came out in 1962. Those three make up a trilogy of sorts because uh, they're shared in similar themes. And we're going to be looking at the film Red Desert, which came out after Le in 1964, which was uh, Antonioni's first color film. Uh, and also fits in very well with these uh, sort of recurring themes and the recurring style that came to define his work. But as per usual, we will start at the very beginning. Now, Antonioni was born on September 29th, 1912, in a city called Ferrara, which is in the, the north of Italy in a region called Emilia-Romagna. Like I said, uh, several of the films he made took place in the industrialized north, and for those of you who don't know, just to sort of fill you in on the broad strokes here, the north of Italy was the industrialized half of the country. A lot of factory towns, automotive plants, 
and it was considered the the more affluent area, the more affluent half of Italy, I should say, compared to the south, which is more rural. The north is where Antonioni grew up, so you're going to see in a lot of his films, if you watch them, a lot of them take place in these sort of these sort of bourgeois environments in the big city, uh, in these sort of industrialized towns where there's a lot happening and there's a lot of bustle. This is that's the Italy Antonioni grew up in. These are these are environments that he was very familiar with. And so he was born in Ferrara to a, a well-to-do family. Had a happy enough but uh, uneventful childhood, from what I've come to understand. Was a very good tennis player. All I know is he never had the makings of a varsity athlete. He attended the University of Bologna in 1935, and he studied economics and commerce there. But while he was there, he uh, actually founded the university's theater troupe. He started writing film reviews for a local publication. Uh, started dabbling in filmmaking as well. But he later moved to Rome in 1940. Of course, the legendary studio Cinecittà is there. And that studio was actually founded and built by Benito Mussolini, who was the fascist leader of Italy, and his son, Vittorio, uh, was basically in charge of the uh, the Italian film industry. And uh, in fact, speaking of which, Antonioni, while he was in Rome, continued to review films for a magazine called Cinema, or Cinema, I guess in Italian, and uh, Vittorio Mussolini, Benito Mussolini's son, was uh, the editor of that magazine. And uh, he took various jobs while he was in Rome. He worked as a bank teller, he was a secretary for a short while, but the 40s ended up being quite a busy decade for him. He ended up taking classes at the Institute of Experimental Filmmaking, uh, he got to know the filmmaker Roberto Rossellini, who is Isabella Rossellini's father, if that uh, name sounds familiar. Roberto Rossellini was actually, like Antonioni, is considered a pioneer of the, uh, the neorealist movement in Italy. And uh, he and Antonioni actually co-wrote a film together called Un Pilota Ritorna, Pilot Returns, which I believe came out in 1942. And during this time in the early 40s, Antonioni also worked as an assistant to a French director named Marcel Carnet. But Antonioni has said in interviews that the two of them didn't really get along, they didn't always agree when working together, they, they butted heads quite often, and yeah, Antonioni wasn't particularly uh, fond of the experience. Eh bien, je, je l'admirais, mais, mais j'étais aussi un peu déçu, je dois le dire. Je n'étais jamais d'accord avec lui. Je trouvais qu'il avait une façon de, de placer la caméra, de trouver l'angle, vous savez, très, très joli. Mais travailler un peu à la surface des choses, moi je ne veux pas ça. And he actually started making his first film, which was a short documentary called Gente del Po, People of the Po. The Po is a, a valley in the north of Italy, and it's also the, uh, the name of the river that runs through it. This is an area that Antonioni uh, knew very well, being a northerner himself. And so he started shooting the short documentary, Gente del Po, in 1943. Uh, but that was interrupted because, of course, by then, you know, World War II had begun, and uh, Italy, of course, was in the thick of it. And he uh, ended up serving in the Italian resistance, 
1943 to 1945. Italy, for those who don't know, was part of the Axis powers with uh, the Nazis and Japan and a bunch of other countries joined over the course of the war. And uh, Italy was basically a fascist dictatorship, and Antonioni was, uh, was part of the resistance efforts. And so the war ended in 1945. He was able to get back to making Gente del Po, and uh, ultimately it saw the light of day in 1947, and uh, it basically followed the, uh, the people who lived along the banks of the Po River, the working poor, the fishermen, uh, and uh, it was an area that was actually prone to flooding. So it uh, basically just chronicled the, uh, the sort of the trials and the general way of life of, uh, of people living in that area. And at the, at the time that Antonioni began shooting Gente del Po in 1943, literally across the, the way on the other side of the river, Luchino Visconti, another beloved Italian director, was shooting his first film, Ossessione, Obsession. And these films, among many others, were considered prototypes of the Italian neorealist movement. Like I said, this was, a, this was an era that came to prominence, uh, especially after the war, but these were basically the prototypes for it. These films sort of paved the way, and uh, a lot of great filmmakers came out of it. We had Roberto Rossellini, who we mentioned before. He made uh, the film Rome, Open City, among many others. Vittorio De Sica, who went on to make Bicycle Thieves and Miracle in Milan, and a bunch of other great films. And uh, we had Visconti, like I said, who made uh, Ossessione, and his work changed later on in his career, sort of in the third act of it, but he also made a lot of great neorealist films, like uh, Bellissima with the great Anna Magnani and Rocco and his brothers, which came out much later in 1960. And so Antonioni was considered a bit of a forebear for this movement, and uh, he continued to be very prolific through the late 40s, made a lot of short documentaries, very intimate, very gritty, a lot of them dealt with social issues. Après la guerre en Italie, mais à ce moment-là, il y avait déjà cette exigence de s'approcher aux hommes. Les documentaires italiens étaient toujours sur sur les choses, sur les lieux, sur les les églises, les œuvres d'art, etc. Mm -hmm. On s'intéressait jamais au travail de l'homme. Et moi, je crois d'être été le premier, d'avoir été le premier à faire ça. And it wasn't until 1950 at the age of 38, that he actually made his first feature film, which is called Cronaca di un amore, The Story of a Love Affair. And uh, it starred Lucia Bose and Massimo Girotti. It was a romantic drama of sorts. And then his sophomore effort came in 1953, which turned out to be another busy year for him. His second film was called I Vinti, which translates to The Vanquished. And the gist of it is three different stories are told. Each of them has to do with various youth who commit murders for various reasons. And the film was kind of hampered by, uh, by censorship. The Italian government uh, kind of poo-pooed it. And the film was also censored abroad where some of it had been shot. And that same year, uh, Antonioni made another film called The Lady Without Camellias. He and uh, Lucia Bose reunited. She plays a young woman who becomes a film star overnight in this film. And also in 1953, uh, Antonioni worked on an anthology film and he directed a segment about suicide. The film was called Love in the City. Uh, but unfortunately, as he sort of threw himself into his work and became busy and bu busier and busier, his first marriage fell apart. He had been married to a woman named Letizia Balboni, and they had been together for 12 years, uh, but in 1954, they went Splitsville. And f reportedly, from what I read, uh, Balboni herself claimed that the two of them had basically just stopped communicating. They had grown more and more distant as Antonioni threw himself into his work. Not unlike some of the characters we're going to be talking about in his films, um, to be honest. And she basically said that their relationship had been reduced to them speaking only of whatever films he had been working on at the time. And uh, she also said that he basically had the actors he was working with live out his own troubles on film. And so anyway, as a result of his split with his first wife, Antonioni sank into a depression. This was in 1954. 
Uh, but the year after that, for whatever it's worth, in 1955, he had a bit of a creative breakthrough with a film called Le Amique, which translates to The Girlfriends. It was based on a story by uh, Cesare Pavese. And the gist of it is it follows a group of working-class women in Torino, in Turin, and as they sort of uh, struggle with their love lives. <laughs> but uh, it's not in a sort of superficial, you know, sex-in-the-city type way. It's... Um, it actually touched on a lot of the themes that would become staples of Antonioni's work. I mean, this sort of urban malaise and the existential dread that some of the characters feel, this sort of loss of uh, or the vacuity between lovers, you know, just that inability to communicate. And, of course, the story takes place in, a, in an industrial and bustling city in the north of Italy. And the film stars Mariana Rossi Drago as Clelia. She plays a young woman who comes from Rome. She goes to Turin to open a, a high-end clothing boutique for the lady she works for. Valentina Cortese, who I absolutely love, a wonderful Italian actress. She lived well into her 90s. She plays Nene in this, who is a, a successful artist who's in a strained relationship with a man named Lorenzo, who's played by Gabriele Ferrezetti. And uh, Valentina Cortese was a fantastic actress. She was in. She worked with Federico Fellini on uh, Juliet of the Spirits with Giulietta Massina. She was in uh, the great François Truffaut film Day for Night in the early 70s. She got nominated for an Oscar for it. She was in uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the Franco Zeffirelli miniseries, a, a wonderful actress, and uh, I have a bit of a crush on her in this, to be honest. And so she and Lorenzo, Ferrezetti's character, have a sort of strained relationship, like I said. The two of them are artists. She is far more successful than he is, and he is a little despondent, shall we say, and uh, kind of withdraws from her, and it puts a very big strain on their relationship. Uh, Franco Fabrizi plays Cesare, the architect, who's in charge of building the boutique that Clelia is supposed to be opening. Ettore Mani plays Carlo, who's basically the only working-class guy of the bunch, and he is the uh, love interest of uh, Clelia. And uh, Yvonne Fumeau plays Momina, who's kind of cynical and superficial, and she's kind of content with spending her estranged husband's money, and, you know, she's a gossip, and she bounces around from man to man. And lastly, Madeline Fisher plays Rosetta, a young woman who is also part of this gang of friends, and it's her failed suicide attempt at the beginning of the film that sort of brings Clelia and their gang together. And uh, to summarize it, I mean, it is a little reductive to say this, but this, this film, I guess, what it comes down to is sort of the plight of people who have everything. You have someone like Clelia, who is successful, she's self-made, she seems to have a decent head on her shoulders, but she's a workaholic who doesn't really have any relationships of substance in her life and doesn't seem to have much time or space in her head or in her heart for relationships. Pensavo che mi sarebbe piaciuto di stare tutta la vita insieme a te. Ma davvero lo pensavi? E allora perché parti? Ma perché avremmo dovuto sposarci prima? Più giovani. E adesso? E adesso non sono più sicura. È troppo tardi per me, Carlo. Appartengo a un mondo così diverso. Lo rimpiangerei, ne sono certa. Sono troppo abituata alla mia indipendenza per poter essere una moglie tranquilla in una casa modesta. Lavorare è anche il mio modo di essere donna, di amare, di partecipare alla vita. Capisci? Può darsi che un giorno io abbia la fortuna di incontrare un uomo con cui poter vivere senza che né io né lui si debba rinunciare a noi stessi. Ma se io e te stessimo insieme, Carlo, io sono certa che uno di noi due sarebbe infelice. Può darsi. Io non riesco a immaginare l'infelicità vicino a te, ma non posso chiederti di rischiare. Ma tu credi che mi sia facile rinunciare a te? Uh, you have Mimona, who, like I said, basically lives a life of leisure. She's promiscuous. She's content to basically just spend her husband's money. And, and we have Rosetta, who comes from a well-off family, and she basically reduces 
her entire existence to deciding what dress to put on. She has feelings for Lorenzo, and she, uh, we come to find out that she attempted suicide because of her unrequited feelings for him. Although the two of them eventually grow closer, and he becomes more detached from Nene, and that drives an even bigger wedge in their relationship. entire group of friends you have Carlo, Ettore Mani's character, who becomes Clelia's love interest, and he is basically the only blue-collar guy in the bunch, and he seems to be the most well-adjusted. And despite all this, the film doesn't really take the piss out of, you know, the middle classes, the upper classes, the bourgeoisie. It's kind of sympathetic, to be honest, and uh, ultimately it ends with each of the main characters sort of ending up back where they started. And I don't want to touch too much on this film, because we've got a lot to get to, but I guess the important thing to remember about it is that it's this film where Antonioni kind of turns a corner and a lot of the sort of hallmarks of, of the style that he would become known for sort of begin to emerge in this film. That goes for the themes and for the aesthetic of the film. I mean, there's lots of long takes shot in a very documentary-esque style. It's very intimate. And again, it's these themes of sort of urban malaise, existential dread, and the sort of inability for people to communicate in the modern world. And the film was shot on location in Torino, and according to Valentina Cortese, I heard her say this in an interview uh, years after the film came out, she said that the production at some point ran out of money. I think it was just a few weeks into shooting, and uh, the shoot ended up taking months and months because it took them a while to get the money together to finish the film. And so after Le Amiche, Antonioni made a film called Il Grido, which translates to The Cry. This came out in 1957, and it follows a factory worker named Aldo, who's played by Steve Cochran who basically begins wandering aimlessly through the Po Valley in the north after the woman he loves leaves him for another man. Anche prima di ieri sera dovevamo dircele. Questo significa che uno dei due non è più vicino all'altro. Firma, sei matta. No, non sono matta, Aldo. Ma se continuo così... Sono cambiata, Aldo. Ti voglio bene, ti voglio ancora bene, ma non è più come prima. Sarà anche colpa mia. Però sono sicura di non sbagliarmi, di fare una cosa giusta, perché sono sincera. Ma cos'è questa storia così all'improvviso? Non è all'improvviso. E allora perché me lo dici solo adesso? Perché è venuto il momento di decidere. Decidere? Decidere cosa? Non farmi parlare, Aldo. È peggio per tutti e due. Lasciami andare via. Andar via? Andar via dove? un altro. Cosa? Cosa hai detto? Mi hai capito benissimo. And the two of them have a daughter, and he initially takes her with him on the journey, and over the course of this journey, he encounters a variety of women, some of them old flames, some of them strangers to him. 
but each of these women is, in a sense, more respectable than him, more admirable than him, because unlike him, who is basically just retreating further and further away from society, each of the women he meets over the course of the film are actually trying to make a go of their circumstances, trying to make the best of whatever it is they've got, and as he continues to distance himself, ultimately he sends his daughter back home to live with her mother. His way of life becomes more and more primitive, and eventually, after withdrawing more and more from his environment, from society, he's left with little choice but to just go back home. But by then he's exhausted, and the film ends with him collapsing and falling to his death. And yet again, you know, we see these themes of alienation and isolation, but however... Unlike the films we're going to talk about shortly, the character at the center of Il Grido, Aldo, is a working class man. He's not a member of the upper class. Perché in fondo se un uomo che non ha problemi economici può disporre di se stesso del proprio, e del proprio tempo per occuparsi di determinate cose, per risolvere certi problemi di natura sentimentale con un incontro, con, non lo so, raggiungendo una persona che non gli è vicina, eccetera, un, un operaio questo non lo può fare. Quindi il, il meccanismo della sua vita proprio lo, lo, lo costringe a rinunciare a certi gesti, a certi, a certi and so the film stars Steve Cochran, like I said, who was an American actor and, uh, from what I understand, a notorious womanizer. Uh, apropos of nothing. Uh, <laughs> Alida Valli plays the woman who leaves him for another man. Alida Valli was an Italian actress who was in the masterpiece directed by Carol Reed, The Third Man, which came out in 1949. It's with uh, her and Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles, one I highly recommend. Betsy Blair is in, is in this as well. She plays an old flame of Aldo's, who uh, he reunites with briefly over the course of his journey. Betsy Blair was married for many, many years to uh, the great Czech-British director Cal Rice, who we covered some time ago. And she also starred in the film Marty in 1955 with Ernest Borgnine, got nominated for an Oscar for it. Dorian Gray is in this as well. She was actually an Italian actress. Dorian Gray was a stage name. She plays a woman who owns a filling station in a remote area of the valley, and she and Aldo have uh, a bit of a dalliance, if you will. He stays with her for a while. And finally, Lynn Shaw plays the young prostitute that Aldo encounters before eventually heading back to his hometown. And another th important thing that came out of this film, perhaps the most important, was after the film was shot, he needed... Uh, Dorian Gray's voice to be dubbed and while he was looking for the right actress for it he met Monica Vitti. Now Monica Vitti was a, a classically trained actress. She had been working a lot in the theater and she'd been doing voice work as well from what I understand before this and the two of them met and a decade-long relationship and a very fruitful creative partnership was born and the two of them made the four films that are going to be the focus of today's show uh, through the 1960s and the first of those films is La Ventura, which came out in 1960. This film was co-written by Antonioni Tonino Guerra, who um, he would collaborate with many times, and a man named Elio Bartolini, who actually wrote Il Grido. And uh, La Ventura, as you uh, can probably imagine, translates to The Adventure in English. 
And it stars Monica Vitti as Claudia, and she is sort of grappling with feelings of guilt and desire as she looks for her missing friend and grows closer to her friend's playboy fiancé, Sandro, who is played by Gabriele Ferrezzetti. He comes back to work with Antonioni again in this. And the three of them have gone yachting off the coast of Sicily with a bunch of friends of theirs. And Anna comes from a well-to-do family. Her father is a big-shot diplomat, and she's a bit of a brat. And her relationship with Sandro has hit the rocks. I mean, the two of them are basically behaving like a loveless married couple, and the two of them haven't even tied the knot yet. And Anna, because the two of them up until then have been in a long-distance relationship, she kind of puts more stock in the possibility or the potential of their relationship than in reality, you know, the, the relationship itself. And that naturally sets her up for a lot of disappointment. It's basically setting a bar that neither she nor Sandro will be able to meet. And she grows a little frustrated with herself, with Sandro, and during the trip she uh, abruptly abandons the group and disappears. And so the group begins a search for her on these mostly uninhabited, kind of barren, rocky islands that they've been visiting. And uh, they come up empty and the search leads Claudia and Sandro, the two of them together, back to Sicily. And almost immediately the two begin growing closer. She is... She's drawn to Sandro. And as the two of them grow closer, and a relationship between the two of them begins to form, their search for Anna becomes just basically a formality. They're basically just going through the motions and kind of half-heartedly searching for her. And who knows if they even want to find her at this point, especially as the two of them become intimate. And Claudia is initially reluctant to enter a relationship with Sandro, naturally because, you know, she's concerned for her friend. She feels a little guilty about being drawn to her fiancé. And so she's a, she has some trepidation at first over her loyalty to Anna and her guilt. Claudia. Ci sposiamo? Come ci sposiamo? Ci sposiamo io e te. Rispondi. Rispondi. Cosa ti rispondo? No. Non ancora, almeno non lo so. Non ci penso nemmeno. In un momento come questo. Ma perché me lo domandi? Mi guardi come se avessi detto una cosa pazzesca. Ma sei sicuro di volermi sposare? Proprio sicuro? Di voler sposare me? Se te lo chiedo? Già. Ma perché non è tutto più semplice? Tu dici che io voglio vedere sempre tutto chiaro. Io vorrei essere lucida, vorrei avere le idee veramente chiare. E invece... But unlike a lot of their friends, Claudia actually wants an intimate relationship. She wants a relationship of substance. And so fairly soon, she gives in to her feelings for Sandro. And she eventually comes to admit that Anna has in fact been sort of relegated to the back of her mind, just within a few days of her going missing. And the same goes for Sandro, and the same goes for their well-to-do bourgeois friends that were on the trip with them. I mean, no sooner than Zana go missing that they start gossiping about her and kind of moving on with their lives and getting their thrills elsewhere as if she never really existed. And Claudia is kind of afraid of becoming one of them. And here is where we see Antonioni really sort of diving into this sort of, this existential dread, this sort of communication breakdown between lovers. I mean, like I said, you have Sandro and... Anna, whose relationship really hasn't gotten out of first gear. I mean, it's been a long-distance relationship, and there's really nothing keeping them together. And there's a scene in the film where she 
She goes for a swim, and she pretends that she's seen a shark just so she can get Sandro to come to her rescue. And call it what you will. Call it, you know, uh, just a plea for attention, a power move, whatever it is. But there really isn't much reason for these two to stay together. And their friends, their sort of upper-class bourgeois friends, are completely numb to the beauty around them. Whether it's these islands that they visit during their yachting trip, whether it's the, the relics and these old artifacts that they find on one of the islands. These, these are people who basically have everything. They have every advantage. Everything is available to them. But you see them, and pretty much all they're doing is killing time. They're completely superficial people. Their relationships mean next to nothing to them. And I guess you can summarize these people as, you know, basically a group who has everything and has absolutely no idea what to do with it. Una ha ricaricato di fare i calcoli per la costruzione di una scuola. Un giorno e mezzo ci ho messo a farli. Ho guadagnato 4 milioni. E allora ho continuato a fare i calcoli per i progetti degli altri. Perché mi guardi così? Perché io invece sono convinta che tu potresti fare cose molto belle. Questo non lo so, non lo so. A chi servono ormai le cose belle, Claudia? Quanto durano? Una volta avevano i secoli davanti, oggi? Al massimo dieci, vent'anni, e poi? No. And so Claudia and Sandro, like I said, develop a, a relationship, a romance. But Sandro is a bit of a philanderer. He has that weakness. And ultimately he disappoints her. And he steps out on her with a prostitute while they're in Sicily. She discovers him. And although Sandro is visibly guilty over his betrayal of her, the ending of the film is kind of left open. Claudia is kind of left with a, a better understanding of who this man is, but whether the two of them carry on or go their separate ways is kind of open to interpretation. And that's another recurring theme in these films that we're going to be talking about, is that Antonioni doesn't really offer up any answers. There are no neat and tidy endings to his films. The viewer is kind of left to decide whatever the, the fate of the, these characters is. And there's this recurring theme of superficiality, like I said, in the modern world. I mean, you see these visuals of these, these lovely landscapes, whether it's the, the islands that they're visiting during the yachting trip, the old architecture of Sicily. You see these sort of remnants of, of past traditions, and they're entirely lost on the characters in the film, most of them at least, even on Sandro himself. And then there's this other scene when the prostitute that Sandro has the dalliance with, there's a scene where she arrives in Palermo, and this woman has, uh, she's a bit of a celebrity. She's gotten some ink in the tabloids, it seems. And upon her arrival in Palermo, hundreds of men are there to greet her. And so, I don't know, maybe you contrast that with the old architecture and these old landscapes, these relics of a bygone era, and I don't know, maybe that's just meant to demonstrate just the, the shift in values, the shift in, the shift in standards in the modern world. 
I don't know, I'm not gonna talk about that any further because I'm gonna expose myself. Keep your mouth shut, I'll let you have it. You shut up! But anyway, you, you see the film and you make of that what you will. Uh, let's talk about the cast quickly. Monica Vitti, like I said, plays Claudia, the first film she and Antonioni had made together. Monica Vitti was an exceptional talent and, quite frankly, a stunning woman. You can't take your eyes off her in anything she's in. And like I said, she was a classically trained actress. And in this, in these films that she makes with Antonioni, she's she's really asked to do a lot. You know, there are these moments of dread. Mo you know, she has feelings of guilt. Or there are these moments where she's kind of playful. You know, these little scenes of, of whimsy, if you will. And oftentimes she has to show you many different colors in a single scene. Appena pronta mi raggiungi. Io sono certamente qua sotto in piazza. Va bene. Ma prima devi dirmi che quando esci senza di me è come se ti mancasse una gamba. Vai pure da solo a visitare la città. Zoppicherai. Devi dirmi che hai voglia di abbracciare la mia ombra che passa sui muri. Sempre così errò. No, no, non ti perderò. Nel tormento più dolce sarò. Con i baci ti riprenderò. E poi devi dirmi che... Devi dirmi che mi ami. Lo sai, perché devo dirtelo? She is wonderful in this. This was a, a breakout performance from her, and she's, she's great in every film she and Antonioni made together. The two of them were a couple for about a decade, and the work she did with him actually caused her some problems because it made a lot of directors kind of sort of reluctant to hire her. But uh, in the late 60s, I guess, when uh, her relationship with Antonioni went south, she was able to play a greater variety of roles and actually proved herself to be a really talented comic actress, and she became one of the most beloved stars in Italy. And so she plays Claudia in this. Gabriele Ferzetti plays Sandro, as I said before. Uh, Lia Massari plays Anna, the fiancé of Sandro and the best friend of uh, Claudia's who goes missing. And she actually developed some, some heart problems during the making of the film from swimming in the cold sea, from what I've read. A couple sources have mentioned this. And she, was act she actually had to be hospitalized and uh, was put in a coma for a few days while she recovered. Uh, she's still around, luckily. She is, uh, she's going to be 90 next year. And so she plays Anna in this. She was also in the Louis Malle film, uh, Le Souffle au Coeur, in 1971, which I think translates to uh, Murmur of the Heart. Dominique Blanchard plays Julia, a member of their sort of bourgeois gang. And James Adams rounds out the cast as Corrado, another member of, of their group. Giovanni Fusco did the music for this. He and Antonioni had worked together many times before. And the film actually ran into a lot of problems during production. It was shot between August of 59 and January of 1960. In August of 59, it was still summer, so Antonioni decided to shoot the, the sequences on the islands off the coast of Sicily first. Uh, however, early on in the shoot, the production company that was backing the film went bankrupt, so it left them with limited supplies. They tried soldiering on, but very soon the crew grew, grew restless. They refused to work, and Antonioni tried soldiering on and shooting the film himself. And they were actually stranded on the islands that they were shooting on, and they actually had to sleep on them for a few days. And like I said, these islands were largely uninhabited, so uh, couldn't have been too easy on them. Uh, but luckily, 
the company Chino del Duca ended up coming through with the money, but uh, even still, the shoot ended up taking many, many months. Like I said, they wrapped in January. And when the film was completed and screened at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, it got a pretty rough reception. There were some walkouts, some people were booing, uh, because like many of Antonioni's films, it defied convention. The pace of it is very slow, the narrative is very loose, it doesn't follow a very sort of strict or, or you know, intricate plot. There's the open ending, of course, there are no, you know, classic staples in the, in the way it was shot, like no point of view shots. There were a lot of long takes as well. However, the day after the screening at Cannes, uh, Antonioni and Monica Vitti both found a public statement in which a long list of people at the festival who'd seen the film signed it and expressed their admiration for it. The expression of the adventure at Cannes was dramatic. We all believed in this film and it was empty, it was in this crowd that laughed questa sala mondana. L'indomani accade una cosa imprevedibile. Scendendo dalla nostra camera, nella volta dell'albergo c'era una lista, una lista lunghissima di nomi importanti, i registi italiani e i registi stranieri, eh, giornalisti, critici, eh, scrittori, persone che avevano visto il film. E questa lunga lista era preceduta da, da alcune parole. Ieri sera noi abbiamo visto il più bel film and luckily, the film went on to be very, very successful when it was officially released. And a year later, Antonioni put out the second film in this trilogy. The trilogy doesn't have a formal name, but in any case, the second entry in this trilogy is called La Notte, The Night, which came out in 1961. And Antonioni wrote the script again uh, with Tonino Guerra as well, and Ennio Flaiano, who had actually worked with Federico Fellini many, many times. They had uh, written La Strada and Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half together. And so the three of them collaborated on the script, and it stars uh, Marcello Mastroianni as Giovanni and Jean Moho as Lydia. And the two of them are a married couple. They're in a loveless marriage. He's a writer who's recently put out a new book, but he's feeling aimless. He's kind of adrift. And Lydia, on the other hand, has kind of suffered in silence for quite some time, just over the state of their relationship and how there's very little keeping them together. And so we follow this couple over the course of a day and a night as what's left of their marriage uh, basically deteriorates. And the film begins with the two of them visiting a dying friend in the hospital, their friend Tommaso, played by Bernhard Wicke. And we watch him sort of lamenting how he's wasted or misspent his life, and it prompts Lydia to leave the hospital in tears, because in all likelihood she feels the exact same way about her life. Quante cose si finiscono per sapere se si resta un po' soli. E quante cose restano da fare? Ieri sospetto di essere rimasto ai margini di un'impresa che invece mi riguardava. E non ho avuto la forza di andare fino in fondo. Molte volte mi consolo dicendo che non avevo neanche l'intelligenza. And this film when I saw it, I've seen it a couple of times and I think it bears a lot of similarities to the Cassavetes film Faces, which came out some years later in 1968. We talked about that on our first episode, if you're interested. For one thing, I mean, there's, there's some obvious similarities in that the story takes place over the course of one day, one day and one night. And as in Faces, this couple's relationship has kind of been eroded by time, by routine and habit. And yet again, another parallel to Faces is that at different points in the film, we see each half of this couple engage in varying acts of escapism, if you will. You have Giovanni on the one hand, Mastroianni's character, who has been unfaithful to Lydia. He has a few flings. He 
abruptly hooks up with a mentally unstable woman in the hospital at the beginning of the film while she's away. And it looks like he gets his, his thrills where he can. But his emotional and creative wells, if you will, have kind of run dry. And he knows it. And he's just kind of resigned himself to it. He's basically just going through the motions. La vita sarebbe sopportabile se non ci fossero i piaceri. E tu, eh? No, io non ho più idee. Ho soltanto memoria. <laughs> Mi dici questo pensierino? Dopo. Allora, andiamo dai Gherardini? Come mai hai cambiato idea? Io non so. Tanto per fare qualcosa. Until later in the night, when they head to the, the house of a wealthy industrialist for a party and he meets his daughter, played by Monica Vitti. She comes back in this again. And Giovanni's totally enamored with her. He thinks that she'll fill whatever void he has inside him, but she refuses to break up his marriage. And on the other side of that, you have Lydia, Jean Moreau's character. Early on in the film, after they leave the hospital, they go to a book party of his, and everybody there is kind of kissing Giovanni's ass, and, you know, they all fancy him to be some sort of intellectual, and she flees. And she ends up spending an afternoon on the outskirts of town, the story takes place in Milan, another bustling and affluent city in the north of Italy. And she flees to the suburbs, and she's wandering through some fields and, you know, watching the young boys fire off some rockets. And she is reminiscing over a, a simpler time. She's back in a place that she and Giovanni used to frequent when they were younger. Sono al sesto San Giovanni, davanti alla Breda. Al solito prato. Ci sono dei ragazzi, sono sicura che ti piacerà. Stanno giocando con dei razzi, pensa. Sì, vanno altissimi. È molto bello. Non preoccuparti. Non è successo niente. Ma no. Santo Dio, ti dico di no. Vieni a prendermi, ti dispiace? And later on, at that same party at the industrialist's house, after she catches Giovanni and Valentina, the industrialist's daughter, together, she tries hooking up with another man at the party, but she can't bring herself to do it. And this party at this opulent mansion runs through the night and into the early morning, and finally the two of them wander off, and Lydia finally has a heart-to-heart with Giovanni. And for the first time, we see her admitting to herself or voicing the fact that their marriage is basically over. There's nothing keeping them together. Stasera ho voglia di morire. E perché non ti amo più? Sono disperata per questo. Vorrei essere già vecchia per averti dedicato tutta la mia vita. Vorrei non esistere più perché non posso più amarti. Ecco. Questo è il pensiero che mi è venuto mentre eravamo al night club e tu ti annoiavi. Se tu dici questo, se vorresti essere già morta, vuol dire che mi vuoi ancora bene. No, è soltanto pietà. And, but he makes a desperate attempt to sort of patch things up and rekindle, rekindle their relationship. But yet again, the ending is left open to interpretation. And you can draw your own conclusions. And again, it comes back to what we mentioned when we talked about Le Amiche, or even in La Ventura. It's the plight of people who have everything. They're a well-off couple in Milan. They don't want for anything. They live in a bustling, 
industrialized city in the north of Italy. You know, it's supposed to be a, a land of opportunity, if you will, a land of prosperity. They have everything available to them. But as I said before, I mean, it's an empty marriage. It's an empty relationship. Whatever was keeping them together has been lost. And Giovanni has become sort of aimless and despondent and adrift. And he seems sort of complacent for much of the film. He seems to be, you know, he seems to be okay with it to a certain extent. And the city that they live in doesn't really seem to do much for them. Again, another recurring visual in a lot of Antonioni's films, we see these images, these shots of the sort of bland cityscapes of Milan. And then later on, when they go to the party at the mansion, we see Valentina, Monica Vitti's character, who is similar to Lydia in that she sort of doesn't seem to care much for the, the excesses of the bourgeoisie. She prefers simple pleasures, and we see her. We see that she's an avid reader. She makes up games to play by herself, you know, away from the crowd. And she's a bit of a cynic when it comes to love as well. She believes that uh, love is actually complicated by communication. It isn't, it isn't helped by it. A me sembra che l'amore debba limitare una persona. Qualcosa di sbagliato. Che fa il vuoto attorno. Ma non dentro. Anche nei romanzi tornano di moda i sentimenti. Ho capito. Stai lavorando stasera. No, credo di non essere neanche più capace di scrivere. Non cosa scrivere, ma come scrivere. Si chiama crisi, siamo in molti oggi ad averla, ma per me si tratta di una cosa segreta che tocca tutta la mia vita. Sei un uomo debole, come me. And as far as I'm concerned, I think it's the best film of the trilogy. It's a lot more, uh, how can I say this? For lack of a better term, it's a lot more intimate than La Ventura. We actually feel like we're invested in, in the fates of these two characters in this, in, and in their relationship. And maybe that's because, unlike La Ventura, this story actually has a pretty firm structure. It's different from, from the 60s films of, uh, of Antonioni's in that way. And in La Ventura, and maybe you could chalk this up to the way La Ventura was shot, or the way the shots were framed, whatever it is. In La Ventura, we're almost as detached from the characters as the characters are from each other. Personally, I don't feel that way when I watch La Notte. La notte è un film che io preparavo già da un anno e, ed è la storia di una festa, una festa che incomincia in una casa borghese così quasi per caso e alla quale partecipano molte persone ma soprattutto due coniugi che sono un po' il perno della storia stessa. E durante questa festa le cose in un certo senso degenerano. Viceversa, con il sorgere dell'alba, tutto si, si placa. In questi due coniugi, che sono i protagonisti del film, qualche cosa invece è successo. E soprattutto si sono visti l'un l'altro con occhio diverso e se stessi con un occhio diverso. E hanno scoperto che in fondo ci vuole molto poco per, per crollare, per cedere. E in fondo bisogna un po' conservare quelli che sono i nostri sentimenti con molto cura con grandi cautele perché i sentimenti che un uomo e una donna riescono ad avere tra loro sono le cose a cui bisogna veramente aggrapparsi per salvarsi nel mondo di oggi and uh, let's talk about the cast quickly Marcello Mastroianni who is one of the biggest stars in Italy if not Europe uh, was in a ton of classic films worked with Fellini a couple of times he was in La Dolce Vita he was in Eight and a Half he was in a Divorce Italian Style which is a very big hit and he was in one of my favorite romantic dramas. He uh, worked with Visconti in the mid-50s on uh, Le Notte Bianchi with uh, Maria Schell, the adaptation of the Dostoevsky story, White Nights. And it is a beautiful and heartbreaking film. And uh, he plays Giovanni in this. And he is wonderful as per usual. 
Uh, Jeanne Moreau plays Lydia, his wife, and she did all her lines in Italian. And it's especially impressive. And this was another common thing in a lot of European productions. A lot of them had international casts. They had actors from all over. And so what would happen is a lot of actors who, of course, didn't speak Italian would do their lines in their mother tongues, their native languages. And then, of course, they would be dubbed over in post. But uh, Jeanne Moreau, to her credit, she was a French actress, spoke French and English, of course. She did all her lines in Italian. And Maria Schell did it as well in Le Notte Bianchi, and she was an Austrian actress, and that's uh, incredibly impressive because the two languages are nothing alike. Uh, but I digress. So, uh, yeah, Moreau did uh, her, her lines in Italian, and she's wonderful in this as usual as the, uh, the long-suffering wife of Giovanni. And she had another incredible career as well. She was in Jules et Jim and Elevator to the Gallows, the Louis Malle film. She was in uh, the Tony Richardson film, Mademoiselle, which we mentioned a little bit on that episode. A wonderful actress, and quite simply, nobody does melancholy like Jeanne Moreau. And we have Monica Vitti as well. Like we said before, she plays Valentina, the daughter of the wealthy industrialist who tries to uh, to poach Giovanni and offer him a job working for him. Sono un po' deluso. Dammi. Mm. Ma come posso riparare? Vogliamo leggere qualche pagina insieme? Sarebbe già un modo per stare più vicini. Ha molto bisogno d'affetto? Lei no. Lo sa che ha un credito verso di me? Mi sono ritirato. Me lo lasci costare ancora per un po'? Questo credito. Se lo ricordi però... And lastly, Bernhard Wicke plays Tommaso, their dying friend who, is, uh, who we see in the hospital early on in the film. Bernhard Wicke was an Austrian actor, and uh, he was also a director. He directed a film called The Bridge in 1959, which got nominated for an Oscar for uh, Best Foreign Film. And Jean Moreau, I forgot to mention, uh, I've heard this in a couple places. I haven't confirmed it, but from what I understand, she wasn't particularly fond of Antonioni's way with actors. You know, some actors like like a more collaborative experience. They like, you know, some of them like to be taken by the hand. I'm not saying that's what Moro wanted necessarily, but uh, you know, different actors have different expectations of their directors. Uh, but Antonioni basically just—he's talked about this in interviews. He basically thought of actors as just one of many cogs in this machine. They were just one of many parts of the process of filmmaking, and he didn't appear to work with his actors particularly closely. Uh, at least not in the behind-the-scenes footage I've seen of him. And he also, interestingly enough, said in interviews that he believed in actors' instincts or the emotions that were inside them were far more important than just sheer intelligence. And he believed that the most intelligent actor wasn't always necessarily the most capable actor. C'est-à-dire que je pense que l'acteur doit travailler plus, plus par son instinct que par le cerveau. Parce que... Si c'était vrai que l'acteur qui comprend mieux son rôle est le meilleur, ça c'est vrai aussi que le plus intelligent c'est le meilleur. Et ça c'est pas vrai. Je cherche de provoquer en eux la plus grande sincérité possible. Parfois avec des systèmes pas tout à fait orthodoxes, mais on arrive à des résultats. But in any case, uh, the film uh, ran into some problems after its release, unlike La Ventura, which 
had most of its problems during the making of. After La Notte came out, the censor strike again, with the uh, Italian Ministry of Cultural Heritage and Activities ordering several scenes to be deleted from the film. So the scene in the hospital where Mastroianni hooks up with the mentally unstable woman, that scene had to be cut short. There was another scene where the word whore was mentioned, that had to be removed, and there was another where uh, Moro's naked breasts could be seen, and the, uh, the censorship board had them uh, cut that as well. However, despite all that, uh, it didn't get in the way of the story too, too much, and the film is still wonderful. It was very well received, uh, very successful. It was uh, the second of a string of hits that Antonioni made in the 60s, and it's often heralded as one of his best, and I agree completely. Of this trilogy of the early 60s, I th personally, I think it's the best. And speaking of which, we come to the final entry in this trilogy, which came out in 1962, and this film is called L'Eclisse, The Eclipse. And this was written by Antonioni, of course. Tonino Guerra worked with him on this yet again, and Elio Bartolini, who co-wrote La Ventura and Il Grido. And, yet again, this film stars Monica Vidi as Vittoria, a young woman who works as a translator in Rome. And the film begins with her ending a relationship of many years with her fiancé, Ricardo. And we watch her deal with feelings of, again, existential dread, malaise, these recurring themes that show up in Antonioni's work. And we see her sort of stumbling into a relationship with a materialistic stockbroker named Piero, who's played by Alain Delon. And... It becomes apparent quickly enough that this is an ill-fated relationship. For one thing, Vittoria seems to be a woman of simple pleasures. She's unhappy, but we see these moments of reprieve, yet another recurring theme in Antonioni's work. We see her at different points in the film where she's enamored by the chiming sound of these metal rods that line the street of her neighborhood at night. We see her take a flight on a friend's plane later on in the film, and she's kind of marveling at the clouds and the sky, and then they land on this, this airstrip in this remote area, and she's wandering around on this little rural airport, it seems. There's, a, there's an almost childlike wonderment in her, in these little moments of escape. And on the other hand, you have Piero, this young stockbroker, played by Delon, who is totally superficial, constantly on the paper chase. He is materialistic, that's for damn sure. The only company he keeps are call girls, prostitutes. And there's an especially telling scene where his Alfa Romeo convertible is stolen and it's recovered from the river the day later and a dead body is found in it. But the only thing Piero can think about is the resale value and the repairs he's going to have to make on the car and whether he can unload it. He could care less about the dead man inside his car. It means nothing to him. Ho capito, ah, la vendo. Ha fatto solo 8000 km, una lucidata è come nuova. And it's yet again, it's more evidence, it's more commentary from Antonioni on a sort of change in values in the modern world. And we see a lot of that, especially in the scenes in the stock exchange in Rome where Piero works. Of course, like, like many stock exchanges, I mean, it's in a constant state of pandemonium. People are going nuts and the stockbrokers are hitting the phones and people are making bids. And it's constantly bustling. It's chaotic. And one day, their wheeling and dealing is interrupted for a moment of silence for a stock exchange employee who has suddenly passed away. And we hear Piero sort of throw out some quip about it's one less minute that he isn't making money. And then, of course, the bell rings to sound the end of the moment of silence, and immediately, chaos erupts all over again. It's pandemonium, as if the moment of silence was nothing more than a formality. It's the paper chase over everything. Mm -hmm. 
Un minuto di silenzio come per i giocatori di calcio. Lo conoscevi? Certo, ma sai, un minuto qua costa miliardi. Ah. some commentary about class as well, which is another thing that Antonioni touched on over the course of his work. We see at the stock exchange yet again, rich and working class people are playing the market. And one day there's a crash, things go south, and many many people lose millions. And we see a rich man who has just just lost a ton of money, and Vittoria follows him to a nearby cafe, and she sees him doodling mindlessly in a little notepad of his. Like the millions he's just lost mean nothing to him. And on the other hand, we see these working-class people, Vittoria's mom included, who are devastated. They've lost everything. And a lot of them are pleading with Piero for help, and he's unmoved. He's indifferent to their plight. And so between his materialism, his superficiality, his, you know, concern with making money and not much else, and her sort of just general malaise, her reluctance to enter into a relationship again and risk more heartbreak, the two of them seem kind of doomed to fail. There isn't much reason for their relationship to last. And it doesn't. We see towards the end of the film, the two of them make an empty promise to meet again, day after day, at their usual spot. And in the final sequence of the film, a now famous sequence, it's about seven minutes long with no dialogue. We watch the day turn to night. We see shots of their usual meeting place on a street corner, shots of an unfinished building. We see water running from a barrel. We see the trees lining the street. We just get a look at the neighborhood, essentially, as day turns to night. And it becomes more and more apparent that neither of these two people are going to show up to the meeting place. Neither of them is going to make the rendezvous, which of course means the end of their relationship. That said, it may look like it, but the film doesn't really end on that bleak a note. And Antonioni has said this himself in interviews. He believed the ending of the film was actually rather optimistic. Because the two of them are each avoiding a relationship that won't, that won't last. They're too different. And there's even a scene in the film after the two of them have been together for some time where Vittoria herself admits that she kind of wished she loved Piero more. And she's coming off a relationship of many years. And during that breakup sequence at the beginning of the film, she admits that she isn't happy and she hasn't been for many years. And so essentially what we see at the end of this film is her sort of making a smart decision for herself, kind of out of self-preservation. And she avoids setting herself up for more of the same. Dimmi una cosa. Credi che noi due andremo d'accordo? Non lo so, Piero. Ecco, tu non sai dire altro. Non lo so. Ma insomma, perché vieni con me? E non dirmi che non lo sai. Vorrei non amarti. Ma amarti molto meglio. And so let's talk about the cast quickly. Monica Vitti, like I said, plays Vittoria. Alain Delon, who was one of the biggest stars in Europe, one of the biggest stars in France, a beloved actor. And by this time, I think he was only 27 when this film came out, but by this time he was already a very, very big star. He had been in Rocco and His Brothers, the great Visconti film, which came out in 1960. And he did a lot of great work with Jean-Pierre Melville as well in the late 60s and uh, early 70s. He was in Le Samurai, Le Cercle Rouge, Un Flic. We talk about all those films in our Jean-Pierre Melville episode, if uh, you'd like to take a listen. Shameless plug. Unfortunately, Delon didn't really become a household name 
outside of Europe. He didn't have much crossover success on the other side of the Atlantic, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. He had been in a few American films, but uh, for whatever reason, just didn't take. So he plays Piero in this. And we have Paco Rabal, the great Spanish actor. He plays Ricardo, the fiancé of Vitoriaz. At the beginning of the film, the film opens with them basically breaking up. The two of them have been up all night discussing the state of their relationship, and there's a good... 15-minute sequence or so at the beginning of the film where things basically go south and the two of them call it quits. È l'ultima volta. No, Riccardo. Non fare così. Ma cosa devo fare? Avanti, dimmelo tu cosa posso fare io lo faccio. Te lo prometto. Farò tutto quello che dici per filo e per segno. Trovami qualche cosa da fare per quando tu sarai andata via. Io volevo farti felice. And uh, Rabal is great in that scene, and he was a wonderful actor. He was in the great Luis Buñuel film, uh, Belle de Jour, with Catherine Deneuve in the mid to late 60s. And he was also in the William Friedkin film, uh, 10 years after that in 77, uh, the film called Sorcerer with Roy Scheider. And lastly, we have Lila Brignone, who plays uh, Vittoria's mom. And I really, really do love her in this. She's, uh, like I said, she's playing the stock market. She's a working class woman not particularly well off and she's you know sort of pinned all her hopes on uh, on striking a rich in the stock market one day and uh, naturally she's devastated on the day of the crash Milioni e milioni mi ci vogliono. Chi me li dà? Eh? Se aspettavi prima di fare quella bella pensata. Adesso Riccardo Mamma. potrebbe... Ma tanto in borsa si sa, ci sono gli altri bassi, è normale. No, no che non è normale. Qui c'è qualcuno che tiene i fili. C'è la politica. Eh? And uh, yet again, more of the same uh, from Antonioni in terms of just the aesthetic of the film. We see these, these long shots, the industrial cityscapes, the sort of bland architecture and these new developments. And the area that Monica Vitti's character, Vittoria, lives in is called the EUR. It had been built under Mussolini, and it, had, it was intended to be uh, an Olympic village. But um, that, unfortunately, didn't come to be, and the area was rebuilt, I think, in the 50s. And by the time Leclisse came out, it had basically become known as an area uh, outside of Rome where uh, the new money generation would make their homes. And yet again, it's Antonioni defying convention, especially in terms of pace, Again, it's a very, very loose narrative. The plot is very simple. And again, it kind of defines convention in terms of the pace. It moves along very, very leisurely. And we don't see very much of, uh, of Delon at all in the first half of the film. We see very little of him. Uh, but in any case, unlike La Ventura, the film was very, very, very well received at Cannes. So the big shots at Cannes had basically done a, a complete 180 on Antonioni in the span of two years. After the strange reception of La Ventura, apparently the Leclisse was was the most highly anticipated film of the festival just two years later. And yet again, as with every film in this trilogy, the film turned out to be very successful. La storia di una ragazza che in seguito ad una delusione amorosa si incontra con un altro giovane ed è restia a lasciarsi andare, a incominciare un altro rapporto, un'altra relazione. Al punto tale che, dopo una serie di incontri e di, e di fatti 
parlo di fatti interni perché nelle mie storie come tu ben sai c'è sempre uno svolgimento più interno che esterno dopo una serie di questi fatti interiori finisce per, per lasciar cadere in un certo senso la relazione stessa questo film concluda tutta questa analisi dei sentimenti che io ho cercato di, di svolgere a partire ancora da, dalle amiche And so that marks the end of the trilogy, but the next film we're going to talk about actually, uh, again, has a lot of parallels to this trilogy in terms of themes and some of the aesthetic. And that film is called Red Desert, Il Deserto Rosso, which came out in 1964. And so this was Antonioni's first color film. It's worth noting. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, and it was written by Antonioni and Antonino Guerra yet again. They reunite for this. And the film is set, again, in the industrialized north in the town of Ravenna which, again, we're going to talk about more later. And it stars Monica Vitti as a woman named Giuliana, and she's an unstable woman who is trying to adapt to life in the industrialized north after recovering from a car accident. And Giuliana's a little bit on edge. She's mentally ill, like I said. And her illness or her moments of distress are depicted in the film through the way she sees colors. So you're going to see certain, certain distortions, certain changes in the color palette in the shot to sort of reflect whatever her state of mind is at that time. Very, very clever. And Juliana's husband, Ugo, manages a petrochemical plant. And he seems to be a decent enough guy, but at the same time, he's totally oblivious to her, her illness, her fragile state. And she soon meets a colleague of Ugo's named Corrado, who's played by Richard Harris. And he's there temporarily. He's passing through. He's there to recruit some workers for a project in Argentina. But Corrado quickly takes an interest in Juliana. He gives her the attention that she's been craving from Ugo. And later on in the film, when Ugo leaves town for a few days for a business trip, she and Corrado engage in a brief affair. But over the course of the film, we see her unraveling. Her condition worsens and worsens. And so she essentially flees to Corrado in a moment of extreme vulnerability. And adding to all that is an incident with her son. Her son pretends one morning to be paralyzed from the waist down. She, of course, is thrown into a panic. And we soon come to find out that her son has been lying to her, that he is in fact fit as a fucking fiddle, and she can't understand why he would lie to her like this, and it, it throws her into a frenzy, and that's ultimately what drives her into Corrado's arms. And we also come to find out over the course of the film she confides in Corrado, and admits that her car accident was in fact a suicide attempt. And what I think the film is about, just in, in the general sense, I mean, if it's about progress, of course, it's about modernity. Because, again, we're talking about a factory town in the industrialized north. All these factories and power grids we see have been recently built. And it's a new way of life replacing the old, to put it in simple terms. And I guess it's about how some people can adapt to the changing times. I mean, we see we see Juliana's husband, Ugo. We see Corrado, who tells her that he believes in progress, if nothing else. Ma tu sei di sinistra o di destra? Come mai mi domandi una cosa del genere? Ti occupi di politica? No, per carità, così. È come domandare in che cosa credi. Sono parole grosse, Giuliana, che richiederebbero risposte precise. In fondo, non si sa bene in che cosa si crede. Si crede nell'umanità, in un certo senso. Un po' meno nella giustizia. Un po' di più nel progresso. And we see their friends as well, who all seem to be content living in this sort of bleak and barren wasteland. 
But Juliana, unfortunately, is struggling to adapt. And we see her early on in the film. She is trying to open a ceramic shop in an old, rundown part of town, you know, well away from the factories. But it's very obvious that she has no idea what she's doing, and she admits herself that she knows absolutely nothing about ceramics, and presumably she's doing all this just to sort of give herself a, a sense of purpose in this new environment. And I guess what it comes down to is she kind of feels like she's being left behind and she doesn't want to go through this alone. She feels very isolated, yet again, another recurring theme in Antonioni's work. Delle volte si legge sugli annunci del giornale causa partenza vendesi, come se fosse una scusa per abbandonare tutto quello che si ha. Ho anche soltanto una parte. Ma perché? Non dovrebbe essere così. Ma come fai a prevedere quello che servirà? Poi le cose che lasci, la gente, le ritroverai al tuo ritorno. E se le ritrovi saranno uguali. Può darsi che non ritorni più. Se io dovessi partire per non tornare più, porterei via anche te. E sì, perché... And, you know, as she unravels and her condition sort of, she begins sort of spiraling out of control and in a very, very sort of fragile state, she makes a, an impulsive and kind of feeble attempt to flee and board a ship at the port. But ultimately, she sort of accepts reality. She resigns herself to her fate and she comes to believe that there's really not much she can do but try to make the best of her circumstances and try somehow to adapt to her new life in the north, in this factory town. Io non posso decidere. Perché non sono una donna sola. Per quanto a volte è come separata. No, non da mio marito, no. I corpi. Sono separati. Se lei mi punge, lei non soffre. Eh? Cosa stavo dicendo? Ah, sì. Io sono stata ammalata. Sì, ma non devo pensarci. Cioè... Io devo pensare che tutto quello che mi capita è la mia vita. Ecco, mi dispiace. Scusi. And again, there's that recurring element of escapism. There's the scene where Giuliana is talking to her son in the hospital, of course. At, the, at this time, she believes that he's paralyzed. And her son asks her to tell him a story, and she she tells him this tale about this this young girl who lives on a beach with pink sand all by herself in this sort of isolated cove, and how she she spends her days swimming in the sea. E la voce in quel punto era molto dolce. Ma chi era che cantava? Tutti cantavano. Tutti. And interestingly enough, the, 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 this town where the film is set, Ravenna, Antonioni actually knew it fairly well. It wasn't far from Ferrara where he grew up, and he had been to Ravenna many, many times. 
and with every visit, he began to see the town getting industrialized more and more, and he was kind of taken aback by its transformation. And it was seeing this transformation of Ravenna that actually planted the seed for Red Desert. La dernière fois que j'ai visité Ravenna, j'ai vu, j'ai eu une impression vraiment extraordinaire. Ça m'a frappé cette cette transformation industrielle de la zone. Et je ne sais pas comment j'ai eu l'idée de faire ce film, mais c'était pas un seul personnage. C'était c'était un milieu plutôt. Alors je parlais avec les techniciens, avec les ouvriers. Je suis entré dans leur maison. And true to its title, it really is a desert. I mean, we see these pools of toxic waste, we see the fumes coming out of the factories, and all this, these chemical toxins have, have basically ravaged all the life in the area. I mean, we, we see the pine forests are receding, the, you know, their days are numbered, the, the water is polluted, the fish in the, in the water reek of petroleum, and they come out all black, and really the only remnants of the old way of life of the area are these little abandoned fishing shacks. And we mentioned that it was Antonioni's first color film, We talk, and just to talk about his use of color for a moment, this film birthed another sort of staple, another habit of Antonioni's, where he would paint the locations he was on to get the desired effect he wanted out of them. He would paint houses, he would have he would have the crew spray forests and grass to get the right hue for the, the color palette that he was aiming for. And we see these colors, these we see this these dark charcoal grays, and again this sort of industrial wasteland. We see these vibrant reds coming from the factories, we see it in a room in the fishing shack during one sequence, and I think ultimately the meaning of these reds varies from scene to scene, but I mean, you know, what the fuck do I know? You can watch them and draw your own conclusions as per usual. Why don't you stick to what you know and leave your opinions wherever the fuck? And of course we see the rich greens of the pine forests, and there's some really, really stunning visuals in this, and it is easily the bleakest of all of Antonioni's films, just in terms of the tone, the subject matter, the aesthetic. But despite all that, Antonioni himself has said in interviews that he wasn't opposed to progress. Et puis, je pense que le progrès est quelque chose d'inexorable. C'est comme la révolution. Il y a, a quelqu'un qui, qui souffre, évidemment, mais il y a quelqu'un qui s'adapte. Il y a des autres qui ne s'adaptent pas. Et alors, évidemment, ils tombent en crise. C'est tout. He wasn't opposed to this new sort of industrialized way of life. And he also made a point to mention that Juliana was mentally ill before she arrived to this industrialized town. It wasn't this change in her life that caused her mental illness, but rather that she was already unstable, and that the emptiness of her life in the north actually triggered her neuroses, triggered her, her illness, and sort of aggravated it. And the film was shot by Carlo De Palma, the first time he and Antonioni worked together. Carlo De Palma actually did a lot of work uh, for Woody Allen later on. And the cast is Monica Vitti, like I said. We have Richard Harris as Corrado, and he was in uh, This Sporting Life, got nominated for an Oscar for in 1963. He was in Camelot as well, and a bunch of other things. 
uh, and Carlo Chionetti plays Ugo, the husband of Giuliana. And interestingly enough, uh, Richard Harris was not Antonioni's first choice to play Corrado. Antonioni admitted this himself in interviews before. Apparently, the, uh, the shoot took quite some time. They fell very far behind schedule, but unfortunately, Harris had already committed to shoot a film called Major Dundee, uh, which came out in 1965, and the story goes that because they'd fallen so far behind schedule, Harris didn't really have any other choice but to leave the production entirely so he could go shoot Major Dundee. Although I have read in a couple other sources that Harris and Antonioni, in fact, didn't really get along and that they may have clashed over the course of the shoot. I don't know if there was a language barrier as well. Harris, of course, was an Irish actor. He spoke English. Antonioni spoke, of course, Italian and impeccable French. I don't think he spoke English all that well, so there may have been a language barrier there at play as well. I can't say for sure. But in any case, uh, Harris had to leave the production before it was over, and uh, they had to use a body double in a few shots to make up for his absence. And yet again, the film was very, very well received. Another big hit for Antonioni, and many people call it a masterpiece, especially because of the way Antonioni used color in the film, and uh, I'm inclined to agree, it's a fantastic film. And so after this, there was a big shift in Antonioni in terms of his career and uh, the kind of work he would, he would do. So in the mid-60s, he ended up signing a three-picture deal with MGM, and Carlo Ponti, who was a big-shot producer and was married to Sofia Loren once upon a time, and so he was going to make three English-language films, the first of which was Blow Up, which came out in 1966. It's probably his best-known film, at least on this side of the Atlantic it is. And the gist of it is, I don't want to talk about it too much because it doesn't tie in quite as well with, uh, with the other films and we've already been going a little long. But basically what Blow Up is about is it's a day in the life of a photographer in swinging 60s London. The photographer is played by David Hemmings, a great British actor. And the gist of it is that he has basically captured a murder on film. He goes out shooting in the park one day, he's shooting a, a couple that's sort of frolicking in the park, and upon uh, looking at the prints and the film from his shoot, he discovers that the man of the couple has been murdered. What are you doing? Stop it! Stop it! Give me those pictures, you can't photograph people like that. Who says I can't? I'm only doing my job, some people are bullfighters, some people are politicians. I'm a photographer. This is a public place. Everyone has the right to be left in peace. It's not my fault if there's no peace. You know, most girls would pay me to photograph them. I'll pay you. I have a charge. There are other things I want on the reel. That said, the film isn't really a, a murder mystery. And the photographer himself doesn't seem all that concerned with who committed the murder. He is basically an artist in constant search of inspiration. He doesn't sit still. He's a tireless artist. He's always on the go. And he lives in a pretty hedonistic world with all kinds of stimulants and pleasures at his disposal. He has any woman he wants. And he lives in a city where people are overstimulated. They're unmoved by the, the, the simple things in life. Even There's even that scene uh, where the yardbirds are playing on stage. And the crowd is just standing there looking zombified, completely unmoved by their performance. And it's only until the band starts smashing their guitars and pandemonium erupts that they actually show some signs of life. And ultimately, at the end of the film, I guess what it's about is it's about sort of grounding yourself again and finding beauty in the simple things. And that's what this photographer does. He finally manages to sit still for a minute and see the beauty in something as simple and in something as primitive as a mimed game of tennis that's being played by a, a wandering mime troupe in the park. 
And that's the gist of the film. I don't want to go into too much detail about it, like I said. Uh, we could do a whole episode on Blow Up Alone, in fact. I might actually do that in the future, but in any case. Uh, Herbie Hancock, the great musician, did the music for this. He was a great piano player from Chicago. Played in Miles Davis's band in the 60s with Wayne Shorter and Ron Carter and Tony Williams. Uh, and later had a very, very prolific and successful solo career. And like I said, David Hemmings is the star in this. And he himself admitted that at first he had no idea what Blow Up was about. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave stars in this as well. She had a lot of positive things to say about Antonioni as a director. She quite enjoyed working with him. And we've mentioned Vanessa Redgrave many, many times on the show thus far, in both in the Carol Rice episodes and in the Tony Richardson episode, her ex-husband. Sarah Miles is in this as well, another great British actress. She was in uh, Ryan's Daughter in 1970. And she was also in The Servant, one of my favorite films, which came out in 1963. Uh, Verushka, the German supermodel, shows up in this as well, as does Jane Birkin in a small part. She was uh, an actress and the wife of Serge Gainsbourg, and her daughter is Charlotte Gainsbourg, a French actress. And like I said, it is Antonioni's best-known film, I think, and uh, it is it was hugely successful yet again, did very well at the box office, was very well received. And he was actually nominated for Best Director at the Oscars for it in 1966. Fred Zinnemann ended up winning for A Man for All Seasons, which uh, coincidentally also stars Vanessa Redgrave. And uh, Antonioni also got nominated for his screenplay, which he co-wrote with Tonino Guerra and Edward Bond, the British uh, writer and playwright. Cosa posso dire? È la storia di un della giornata di un fotografo e dell'esperienza che questo fotografo fa durante questa giornata. Dico esperienza per dire che proprio attraverso le fotografie scopre quello che lui non aveva visto. Ecco perché parlo di esperienza ed ecco perché è abbastanza importante. Cioè questo fatto è tale da metterlo in crisi alla fine del film. E tale da rendere questa esperienza positiva tutto sommato. Cioè io considero questo film come un film ottimista. And so the 60s were a pretty damn good decade for Antonioni. He didn't miss. <laughs> he had a string of hits that were both critical and commercial successes, all of them great films. Uh, unfortunately, his first American film as part of this deal with MGM, the second of the three, uh, Zabriskie Point, came out in 1970. It was co-written by Sam Shepard, the great actor and playwright, uh, but it was a total flop, and it was panned, and it was about two young people who meet at Zabriskie Point in Death Valley in the States, and it follows their relationship during a time of sort of unrest and uncertainty in the U.S. That's the gist of it, essentially. And after that, Antonioni followed Zabriskie Point with a documentary that he had been commissioned to make by the Chinese Communist government, uh, in the early 70s. That documentary was called Chunko China, and it came out in 1972. It was over three and a half hours long, and I believe it's split into three parts, and a lot of it covers the lives of, uh, of many working-class people and farmers in China in the areas that they were allowed to shoot in. Keep in mind, it's the early 70s. China is still under the rule of Mao Zedong, who, to put it quite simply, was a homicidal maniac. A lot of people died under his, his regime. He was in power from 1949 until 1976, and naturally the Chinese administration was expecting a very a very pro-China, pro-administration documentary, and that's not what Antonioni made, and I believe the, uh, the film ended up getting banned after it was released because of it. And the last film on that three-picture deal with MGM was the next film Antonioni made, it was called The Passenger, which came out in 1975, uh, and it stars Jack Nicholson as David Locke, who's a journalist, and he's in Africa trying to collect footage for a documentary he's putting together, and he's trying to get in touch with some, some rebel militia groups in the area. And he meets a fellow traveler who dies suddenly in their hotel. He finds his dead body. He swaps identities with him, not knowing, of course, 
that this fellow traveler is actually an arms dealer. And not long after that, Nicholson's character hooks up with a young architecture student played by Maria Schneider, and the two of them go on the run. And it's similar to Il Grido in the sense that we see, we basically see Nicholson on the run for much of the film. So it's basically a prolonged act of escapism, <laughs> as opposed to enjoying a few moments of it, uh, like we saw in some of the earlier films we mentioned. Uh, but most importantly, it's Nicholson quite simply running away from himself. And it's a good film. A lot of uh, critics and people in the know sort of considered it a return to form for Antonioni after the, the dud that was the Brisky Point. And it's a great cast, too. Nicholson, like I said, a very understated performance for Nicholson as well. He's very good in this. Uh, Maria Schneider, like I said, who was in Last Tango in Paris with Marlon Brando and Jean-Pierre Léo, and it was a controversial film, and Schneider herself said that was a very traumatizing experience for her. Jenny Runnaker shows up in this as well. She was actually in the John Cassavetes film Husbands in 1970, which we talked about in our first episode, and Ian Hendry is in this film as well. He plays a former colleague of Nicholson's in the film. And like I said, this film was very, very well received, but, but Antonioni would never reach the heights or the success that he did uh, in the 60s again for the rest of his life. Uh, that said, he kept working, he kept a pretty good output, and in 1980, he and Monica Vitti reunited years after the two of them had parted ways for a film called The Mystery of Overwald, and Antonioni followed that in 82 with a film called Identificazione di una donna, Identification of a Woman, and in 1985, he was working on another film, he had been adapting a short story that he had written in the 70s when he suffered a stroke, and the stroke was quite debilitating. I mean, it severely affected his speech, and uh, it left him partially paralyzed, from what I understand. The year after the stroke, in 1986, he married a woman named Enrica Fico, who uh, worked with him on a lot of his projects, especially since, you know, given the stroke, he wasn't in uh, the best of shape. And uh, she helped a lot relaying instructions that he wanted to give actors and the crew on set. So she played a very, very big role in the work that he produced in the, the latter part of his life. Uh, that said, despite the stroke and uh, the difficulties that came with it, he continued to make short films. His output wasn't quite what it had been in the 60s and in the 50s and before then. But then in 1995, he made a film called Beyond the Clouds, and this was, it was based on a series of short stories that Antonioni himself had written. He had been lured out of retirement for it. I believe the, uh, the producers of the film were the ones who uh, sort of coaxed him uh, off the couch. And given uh, his sort of fragile state, Antonioni's friend Vim Vendors, the great director who made Paris, Texas and Wings of Desire, uh, he co-directed the film. The two of them worked on it together. And uh, it starred John Malkovich, Sophie Marceau, Jean Renault, Peter Weller, Jean Moreau and uh, Marcello Mastroianni both come back in this in smaller parts. So he got a bit of the old gang back together. And that same year, in 1995, uh, Antonioni won a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy. And in 2004... He made his last film. It was a film called Eros, and the film was basically three stories about love and sexuality, and he directed one of the three stories. The other two were directed by Steven Soderbergh and Wong Kar Wai, and uh, this was especially impressive because Antonioni was in his early 90s at the time. And ultimately, on July 30th, 2007, Antonioni died at the age of 94. And coincidentally, this was the same day the great Swedish director Ingmar Bergman died in his sleep at the age of 89. Uh, Antonioni was survived by his wife, Enrica. He uh, didn't have any children. And also, I wanted to mention that Monica Vitti, who had many people considered to be Antonioni's muse during the 60s, she died actually a couple months ago, this past February, at the age of 90. 
She had a sort of degenerative condition, something like Alzheimer's from what I understand. She had been out of the public eye for many, many years because of her condition. She was 90 years old. May she rest in peace. Rest in peace to the goddess. And it was interesting watching interviews about Antonioni and reading about him, just in summation, if I may. If you see old interviews of his, he was very serious. He had a very sort of professorial air about him. A bit of an introvert, didn't give too much away. Uh, and he also had a lot of tics. A few, I've heard a few people mention this, David Hemmings especially. He wasn't always very, very forthcoming when talking about certain parts of his films, mostly because he believed that once a film was made, he didn't really dwell on it, and that after that, the only meaning to be taken from his films was that which each individual viewer gave them. Uh, and also, he didn't really particularly enjoy the process of making films. He's talked about this in interviews as well, and he kind of compared himself to Vim Vendors, where, where Vendors had a great time making films and, and greatly enjoyed the process. Antonioni thought of it as a, actually a very, very trying experience, and, and he kind of likened it to almost having a, a tumor in his stomach. Mentre per un mio carissimo amico, Wim Wenders, girare è un divertimento folle, per me girare è quasi direi una sofferenza, proprio perché il dover inventare continuamente questa, questa, questa ossessione della della soluzione tecnica che deve essere anche nello stesso tempo poetica è una cosa faticosa per me a volte riesce, a volte no però voglio dire è il momento più difficile di tutta la, di tutta la serie di fasi che il film richiede and his work habits were pretty interesting he wrote very very loose scripts his scripts consisted of little more than the dialogue and some notes sprinkled in here and there but they were mostly written for the actors, to give them something to work with, obviously. And he never really went into a day shoot with a sort of set, predetermined plan of how he was going to shoot a scene. Often what he did was he would send everybody away from the set before shooting was to begin, so he could have a little time to himself, and then he could just sort of think and chew on how, how a shot was to be framed, how a scene was going to be shot. And he was also open to improvisation during shooting. And another thing I, I thought was interesting in reading about him uh, for one thing, he was a painter, he was a writer, and he was also fascinated by technology, and he predicted, I've read this uh, in an inter interview he gave in the late 60s, he predicted that technology would continue to play a more and more active role in our lives, and that it was up to us to adapt to it, which is kind of similar to his assessment of Red Desert, right? The times are changing, a new way of life is coming in, and it's up to men to adapt to it. And he also held a stance that, you know, traditional cultural values were sort of getting in the way of mankind's adaptation to modern life and to the changing times, the changing world. That basically holding on to traditional cultural values were actually doing us a disservice in the way we went through modern life. And, I don't know, I kind of get what he's saying, but personally I disagree. I think in a changing world, especially given the current state of things overall, I think holding on to certain traditional values, not all, can actually help people stay grounded and sort of keep their heads, but I don't know, maybe that's just me. Uh, in any case, uh, and there was another interesting observation I... I I thought of when sort of comparing Antonioni and Visconti, that the two of them, like I said, were considered sort of forebears of that Italian neorealist movement after World War II. But in his later work, in Visconti's later work, you look at films like The Leopard and Death in Venice, Conversation Piece, you see him sort of showing appreciation or giving a bit of a eulogy to these traditional ways of life and celebrating the sort of the, the beauty and the opulence of the architecture and the art of centuries past. And on the other side of that, you have Antonioni, who basically developed a reputation for finding the beauty in the mundane and nothingness, in these sort of landscapes, in these cityscapes that kind of look bland and that to many people, myself included, would seem kind of soulless. You know, you look at the the apartment complexes and Le Clisse in, the, in that new development, uh, the factories in Red Desert, 
And it's interesting hearing Antonioni talk about those factories and the, these industrialized towns. He actually saw a certain beauty in these factories, and he, he saw a certain vitality in them because they were created by man. You know, a factory was it was a sign of life. Dans laquelle on voit un demi-tour de l'horizon complètement couvert d'usines, de, de cheminées, de, de raffineries, des choses comme ça. Et l'autre côté, au contraire, est complètement couverte d'une pinède. Moi, je trouve que cette ligne euh, riche, euh, représentée par, par, la, par les usines, est beaucoup plus belle, même esthétiquement, de la ligne verte, mais uniforme des de, de, de pinèdes. Parce que derrière les usines, on sent, sent l'homme, elles sont vivantes. Tandis que derrière les, les verres des de, de pinèdes, il n'y a, a rien. Il y a les animaux, il y a un monde sauvage qui m'intéresse moins. Voilà. And... Like I said at the top of the show, Antonioni was credited with setting a sort of new standard for the European art films of the 60s. And this, of course, was years after the advent of the neorealist movement, which he's also credited with helping create. Uh, but despite his success and that string of hits he made in the 60s, Antonioni did have his detractors. Because, like I said, he defied convention. You know, the very long shots, the loose plots, this sort of disregard he had for, you know, kind of fleshing out his characters. You know, the pacing of his films, which we talked about. A lot of people might think that they... His films sort of meander, that there's no there's no real structure to them. And so a lot of critics have said that, you know, he was kind of self-indulgent, that he was pretentious even. And that's understandable, especially if, you know, you're, you're more of a traditionalist. And even Bergman himself said that he considered La Note and Blow Up to be masterpieces. And I agree with that. I think they're his two best. But he kind of disregarded Antonioni's other films. And so I can understand where the criticism comes from. But at the same time, I think that a lot of what's in these films, those 60s films that we talked about especially, it's uh, a lot of what's in there is true to life. Societal values have changed. We are more disconnected in the modern world, especially especially today where technology plays such a huge role in our lives. It's, it's in everything we do. And, you know, much like what we see in La Note, relationships do erode over time. People do grow bored with each other. And communicating your feelings is, is difficult. It can be agonizing for a lot of people. It's not an easy thing to do even when we're doing, we're trying to do it with, with people who are supposed to be close to us. But I think best of all, well, probably what I like most about these films, especially in, the, in that trilogy of La Ventura, La Nota, and La Iglesia, is that he doesn't really offer up any answers. And I like it when filmmakers do that. I don't like the neat and tidy ending, because that's not true of life. Closure is hard to come by, for the most part, if you can get it. You know, there's, no, there's nothing clean about the way we go through our problems. And sometimes we just don't get through them. It's a simple fact of life. And I don't mean to sound pretentious or, you know, I don't fancy myself much of an intellectual, but, you know, that's what it comes down to for me, just to put it in the simplest of terms. And so with all that said, that is all I got on Michelangelo Antonioni and those films he made in the 60s. I encourage you to watch them. And so with that said, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for supporting the show. And please like, subscribe, leave comments, leave ratings and reviews wherever it is you get your podcasts. We're available on pretty much every major platform. We're on... Uh, Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Podbean, of course, you name it. So wherever it is you get your podcast, please uh, show us a bit of love to help the show rank a little better and let us know what you think, of course. Feedback is always welcome. You can email us at closesetpod at gmail.com. If you've got any questions, comments, feedback, whatever it is, it is always welcome. 
And uh, don't forget to follow us on the Instagram as well at Closed Set Podcast. That is Closed Set Podcast. I post updates on uh, what's coming up with the show, who we're going to be covering next, and so on and so forth. And so, thank you again for listening. Thank you for supporting the program. And until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye bye. Durante i silenzi si possono dire tante cose. Le immagini hanno una loro forza, parlano da sé, non hanno bisogno dell'ausilio della parola. Molto, molto silenzio spesso. sicuramente. Certo. Secondo me il cinema è tutto da rifare, anche. Anche la, la convenzione, per esempio, della, del dialogo risolto con il, il solito campo e controcampo, non è mica vero che eh, guardandosi in faccia si riesce sempre si riesce a capire l'interlocutore. Molto spesso per capire uno deve guardare nel vuoto, deve isolare il proprio pensiero.